Hey everyone, this is T-Roll, the host of the Campus Outreach Podcast. We're taking a break from our normal podcasts over the summer, and instead we'll be posting audio versions of various talks that were given at our beach project from earlier this summer. If you are interested in viewing the video form of the following message, please go to cobirmingham.org forward slash campus talks to find all of our talks from this year's beach project. Thanks so much and enjoy today's talk. story. If you guys remember from the past two days, we've primarily been looking back. We've been talking about the past. So chapter one, we talked about creation, God making everything good. Then we talked about sin's entrance in the world. Then we talked about this expectation, this waiting for a savior, for a hero. That hero shows up in the person of Jesus and through his life, death, and resurrection, he accomplishes redemption on our behalf. So this morning, we're actually going to shift our gaze. We're no longer going to look back. We're actually going to look ahead. And if you're a human, all right, you love to look ahead. And we can look ahead to small things today or big things later on down the road. Some of you are looking ahead uh, to, to you know, a great dinner you're going to have this evening, uh, a workout, going to the beach, having a glass of iced coffee. We look forward to little things, but we also look forward to big things. Maybe it's a graduation or... Uh, a vacation you're going on later this summer, or, or uh, you know, the potential that you might get married sometime soon, but we're always anticipating, hoping, desiring, looking forward to things in the future. And unfortunately, the one thing that we tend to not think about or not look forward to is heaven. Anybody agree with that? I mean, how many of you would say on a regular basis, I think, I meditate, I consider the new heavens and new earth? Anybody? Okay, a few of you. And so here's what's really interesting. When the Bible describes the new heavens, new earth, it is worth waiting for. It's exciting. It's inspiring. It should captivate your heart and mind. Unfortunately, we rarely think about it because we're very present-oriented. And I think because we have, we have actually uh, misconceptions as to what heaven truly is. Now, what are the, some of the typical Hollywood pictures of heaven we think that sometimes heaven is going to be one never-ending campus outreach meeting, right? Teaching, testimonies, singing, just a non-stop worship service. And some of you might get excited about that. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I can do that very long, okay? Uh, sometimes the Hollywood picture of heaven, it's, it's angels that look like chubby little babies. They're in diapers and they're stroking harps on, on your own individual personal cloud. Anybody want to experience that for eternity? Right, And so when, if that is our perception about heaven, no wonder we don't think about it. Because it's not captivating, it's not exciting. So this morning we're going to start to look ahead and see what does the Bible actually say about the new heavens and new earth. So last night you actually learned a way to study and to dig deep in God's word. So we're going to put it into practice. For the next 10 minutes, I'm not going to talk, but you're actually going to read and study God's word on your own. You can do it with some people who are sitting around you. We're going to go to a... Uh, the second to last book in the Bible, or chapter in the Bible, it's Revelation 21. So I want everybody to open their Bibles. We're going to look at Revelation 21, and we're going to do the here method. We're going to make some observations on these seven verses. Okay, so you can read it, talk about it, discuss it with people next to you. 
We're just taking five, ten minutes, and here's what I want you to pay attention to. Okay, what, what is present in heaven? What is absent in heaven? So what do we find in heaven? What do we not find in heaven? And then finally, I just want you to ask the question, what makes heaven heaven? What makes it so good? What makes it so perfect? So we're going to play some background music. We're talking five, six, seven minutes. Interact with the people next to you, but have a quick conversation about how the Bible describes heaven. Okay? Okay, we're going to bring it back. Hopefully that will lead to some more interaction and discussion. I can fill in some of the gaps uh, as to what you read. But if you remember, yesterday we were looking at the life and public ministry of Jesus. And we said that following his life, death, and resurrection, he spent 40 days on earth interacting with his disciples and then he ascends into heaven. But before he ascended, remember he issued a great commission or a promise. And he said, one day I'm going to come back. I'm going to return, and when I do, I'm going to gather all people from all times, all places, all nations into one family of God. And if you remember, following Jesus' ascension, the church starts to be persecuted. They face significant adversity and hardship. And there's a reason for this, because as they were scattering throughout, all throughout the Roman Empire, they were pro- proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And if you remember, they went from city to city... Jews and Gentiles saying that Jesus is who? Jesus is Lord. He's the King of Kings. And this actually was offensive to the Roman culture because they believed that Caesar was Lord, that the emperor was the ruler, and as a result, many of the church leaders were persecuted. Do do you remember I said that the church leaders, they were called apostles? These were the original disciples of Jesus. They actually started the church. They would lead congregations. They They would write scriptures. Do you know that, um, that 10 out of 12 disciples were martyred for their faith? That means that they lost their life. They actually executed, murdered because they're of their allegiance to Jesus. Some were actually crucified upside down. Some were burned at the stake. Some were sawed in two. And 60 years later, there was only one remaining apostle, and his name was John. John was the last apostle. He was the last of a dying breed. And he was actually in exile. Let's go to the next slide. So John was put in exile. That's like serious timeout. And an island in the bottom left corner called Patmos. This is off the island of Greece. Because, he, because of his allegiance to Jesus. And so guess what John would do each and every day. Even on a deserted island in exile. He would worship Jesus. And he would start his day probably just like you started your day today. Maybe not coffee, you know, in a granola bar, but he would worship Jesus. He would roll out his scripture. He would pray. He would sing. He would meditate. He would meet with Jesus. And and while he's worshiping, Jesus actually speaks to him in a vision. And he receives a series of illustrations and graphics and stories that are rich with imagery. And he writes them down. And that's how we receive the final book of the Bible. It's called the Revelations. Of John. And just like every book you read, there's one theme to this letter. Just like every movie you watch, there's one unifying message. And this is the theme of the book of Revelations. It's this. It may seem as if evil is reigning, but Jesus is on the throne. It may seem as if evil, wicked Caesar is in control, but Jesus is the King of Kings. And so the whole purpose of the book of Revelations 
is to remind us that Jesus will accomplish His purpose through the Holy Spirit and the church. And one day Jesus will return, because remember, we're living in the already but not yet. We're in between times. Jesus has been elected but not inaugurated. There's been a proposal but not a marriage. We're waiting for the final victory, but Jesus will return one day and defeat sin, Satan, and death. I've heard one pastor put it this way. Very often when, pa- when, when people approach the book of Revelations, it, they approach it as a book of hopeless speculation for the future. They're trying to predict the future. When will Jesus return? Who is the Antichrist? And usually it's whoever their political opponent is, right? It's either Donald Trump or Barack Obama, right? Whoever they dislike becomes the Antichrist. But that's how often people in the Southeast read the book of Revelations. But the book of Revelations is not a book of hopeless speculation for the future. In fact, it's the opposite. It motivates hopeful obedience in the present. Hopeful obedience in the present. So let's look at this passage in Revelations 21 that you just studied. Did you notice this? Does John refer to heaven as heaven? What does he call it? He calls it what? The new heavens and earth. Now this word new, it means transformed. It means made new, like new, remade. And this is really interesting. Humanity, we can make things better. We can upgrade phones, cars, technology. We can make adjustments. We can improve things. But guess what we can't do? We can't make things new, can we? But only God can make things new. And John says that the old earth, it passes away. Now here's what you need to understand. When when the Bible says that the earth passes away, it doesn't mean that this earth, this planet, will be burned up or destroyed. Now why is that? Remember Genesis 1? When God makes the heavens and the earth, He says it's what? It's good. You think God's going to destroy His good creation? No, He says that this is blessed. Now it's been distorted by sin. So when the earth passes away, that means evil is removed. That means sin is purified. So this isn't a fire of destruction. This is a refining fire. And in this vision, did you notice what John sees? John sees heaven what? What direction is heaven moving? The new heavens. It's coming down. See, very often we have a more like Star Wars, Star Trek perspective that we get sucked up, beam me up Scotty into heaven. But that's not what's going on. The metaphor that John gives He says that the new heavens come like a bride to a groom. Now, one of the greatest privileges I have in my job is I get to officiate weddings. I've done almost 30. And every wedding that I've participated in, okay, the groom has one job. You want to know what it is? Stand there, don't lock your knees, and just wait for the bride. And then they open the doors, they play canon and D, and slowly but surely, one step at a time, the radiant bride, locking arms with her father, approaches the groom, right? The bride does all the work. She descends, she moves down the aisle to the groom. That's a picture of heaven coming to earth. You see what John is saying? Heaven comes down. And John not only sees something, he hears something. He hears this, the dwelling place of God is with men. Do you see what this is? This is a fulfillment of Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, in the perfect garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they walked with God. They dwelt with God before sin enters the world. Once again, our perfect relationship with God is restored. And there are some things that are noticeably absent from heaven. Did you guys make a list? 
What will not be in heaven? What did you pick up on? No what? No tears. There's no crying. No pain. No mourning. No crying. No death. There's no prejudice. There's no sin. There's no partiality. There's no hate. And there's no unbelief. Sin is a place of perfection. Now, we, we heard this great story, you know, about, you know, these campus outreach non-students hanging out on campus, interacting with students, and talking about Jesus. You want to know one of the reasons why campus outreach staff love talking about Jesus? You want to know one of the reasons why leaders, student leaders in campus outreach, love evangelizing or sharing the good news with people who aren't followers of Jesus? Because in eternity, everyone in heaven will what? They'll believe. They'll worship Jesus. And I don't know how long the Lord has given me to walk this earth. It might be five years or it might be 50. But the opportunity to share the good news with somebody who is not a follower of Jesus is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So you better believe, however long the Lord gives me, okay, that I'm going to be active, ambitious, opportunistic to share my faith with people who don't follow Jesus because I love him, and it's the only chance I got. Do you see that? So there's some, some other things that aren't, that aren't present in heaven. There's no sea. There's no sea. What does, it, what does that mean? No swimming pools, no lakes. Well, remember, we, we talked about the flood. Sea in the Old Testament, it, it's a sign of wrath. It's a sign of judgment. Do people live on the sea? Nobody lives on the sea. You travel through the sea to get to your destination. Do seas unite? No, seas divide peoples and nations and places. And do you see what John is saying? He's saying heaven is a place of perfect stability. There's no judgment. There's no wrath. But there's also no, no division. All people will be united. And here's what I encourage you to do. Read the rest of Revelation 21. Because you'll actually come across some dimensions. John starts talking like, like an architect or a city planner. And he says that heaven is essentially has the dimensions of a cube. Now, anybody ever seen a city that has the exact dimensions of a cube, a perfect square? Probably not. And once again, this is a metaphor. It's an allegory. But a couple days ago, I mentioned something called the tabernacle. Do you remember that? It was a place that ancient Hebrews would go, and they would come into the presence of God. And there was one very special room in the tabernacle, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And only one person can go into the Holy of Holies only once a year after he made several sacrifices so that he could be cleansed and purified to enter the presence of God. Anybody want to guess what the dimensions are of that room in the Holy, the Holy of Holies? It was a what? It was a cube. A perfect square. So do you understand what John is saying? He's saying the best part about heaven is this. You live in the presence of God. And what the high priest could only do once a year for a moment after the sacrifice of the lamb, you get to bask in, bathe in for all of eternity. It's the perfect presence of God. And then he starts throwing out these dimensions. He says the new heavens, it's like 12 stadia. Now what is a stadia? Well, just know this. It's bigger than a mile. It's bigger than a kilometer. 12 stadias is the distance from London to Athens, Greece. It's the distance from New York City to Houston, Texas. Do you understand what John is saying? He's saying this city is massive. It's overwhelming. And it's got room for everybody. All people, all tribes, and all tongues. But what's the best part about heaven? Let's go to the next slide. 
This is a quote from a pastor named John Piper. He talks about the best part about heaven. Is it the no tears? Is it the size? Is it the streets of gold? John Piper says this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The best part about heaven is this, is that we get to see the face of God face to face. It's granted to us. It is done. It is complete. The perfect presence of God. Let's look at one more passage on heaven. This is Revelation 7, 9 through 10. Same vision. John says this, After this I looked, and behold, the great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Just want to point out two things. The new heavens, first and foremost, is a place of perfect diversity. Do you see this? What types of people will be present in heaven? Is it some nations? Is it just Americans? Just Africans or Europeans? No, it's every nation. Every tribe, every people, every language. That means every language that's ever been spoken. Every dialect, every accent, whether your country, your city, right? Cajun or redneck, everything will be present in heaven. Every skin tone, light skin, dark skin, everything in between. Every culture. I've heard one pastor put it this way. Heaven would be hell for a white supremacist. Because it's a place of perfect diversity. But there's also unity. Because these people from different places, they're standing together. Before the throne. And they're clothed in white robes. Meaning what unites them is they've been saved by the Lamb. Their Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what this is, it's unity but not uniformity. Do you understand the difference? We've got perfect unity but not uniformity. Heaven does not remove our past. It does not remove our culture or our race. It redeems it. Because this honestly, it brings more glory to Jesus because Jesus receives worship from all generations, all peoples, and all nations. So this is the kingdom. Perfect diversity, perfect unity. And Jesus teaches us to pray, what about the kingdom? Do you remember? Thy kingdom what? Thy kingdom come. So we need to pray that prayer, but we also need to be the answer to that prayer. That means we use our words, our deeds, and our relationships to what? To bring heaven down to earth. So if we're going to be people who bring heaven to earth, it means two things. We've got to be patient, but we also got to be hopeful. We've got to be patient. Because our world, every aspect of our world is affected by sin. That includes nations and governments and peoples and families and relationships. Everything is affected by sin. So we've got to be patient. But at the same time, we've got, to, we've got to be hopeful because God is using imperfect people like you and me to renew creation. And so the metaphor, the analogy that John uses over and over again, and this is all throughout Scripture, is that our relationship with God is very similar to a marriage. Okay? And what the Bible is not saying is that there's some sort of weird sexual intimacy between us and God, but it's talking about two things. It's talking about closeness and commitment. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we're not just friends, we're not just buddies, we're not social media followers, 
God says, when I come into you, a relationship with you, it's like a marriage in the sense that we are close and I'm 100% committed. I'm in a covenant with you. Did you know that the way they did weddings in the ancient Near East is very different than we have weddings today, but it actually follows the same storyline? Here's how weddings, marriages work back in the ancient Near East. First off, the young man would initiate the marriage. Okay, he, he would hit a knee, he would propose, he would ask a young woman to be his bride. And then immediately following that, guess what that young groom would do? He would go and he would prepare a home. He'd get his hammer, he'd get his nails, he'd build a house, he'd build a hut, he'd build a place that the bride and groom could live together. Well, guess what? Who initiates this relationship with God? Jesus does. He left heaven and he came to us. He left his comfort of heaven. He entered a broken world to be in a relationship with us. And Jesus actually says this, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a home for you. That's what Jesus is doing right now. And so the bride, as her, as her future husband, would prepare a home, she would wait. And look, this is before save the dates. This is before, you know, Google invites. This is before text message and phone call. So the future bride would just wait patiently but expectantly. <coughs> and she would be ready. And then one day, guess what she would hear? She would hear the sound of trumpets and shouts, and she would know what? My groom is here. The wedding is near. And so in the same way, we wait for Jesus. And here's the first thing that the groom would do. Before he could actually marry his bride, he would have to put down a down payment, a deposit. They actually called it, called it a dowry or a bride price. And we've got something similar, like in the U.S. today. On average, an American wedding costs about $30,000, okay? You want to get married, you've got to pay up, okay? So the young groom, he would pay up the bride price to the father of the bride so that he could marry his girl. Well, what's the price that Jesus paid? 30K? A couple sheep? No, Jesus pays the price by giving his life. He says, I'm so committed to you. I'm so committed to my church, my followers. I'll pay the ultimate price. I'll sacrifice my life. And then once the young groom would pay the price, okay, and this is where the ancient Near East is a little different than today, they would actually consummate the marriage, and they would follow it up with a big festival, celebration, and wedding feast. And you see the book of Revelations is saying the same thing. It's saying when Jesus returns, heaven and earth, two become one. They're consummated. They're joined. They come together. And what's going to follow for eternity? The best reception, the best feast, the best party of your life. Do you know this? The dominant image of what heaven's going to be like is a wedding feast. It's a wedding reception. And I know you're college students, so you probably think you've been to some really good parties. Keggers, kickbacks, mixers, parties at the pub. Okay, that's a little Carrollton shout out. But let me tell you this. Okay, the best parties, and you'll see once you graduate, the best parties are wedding parties. Because you wear your best clothes. And you drink the best wine. And you eat the best food. And you share the best stories. And there's usually like a Motown cover band and you dance the night away. And that's a taste. It's a small taste. It's a hint. It's a taste of what heaven's going to be like. And so look, very often when you ask people in the southeast, what is the good news of the gospel? What is the good story? They usually say something like this. Jesus died for me. You ever heard somebody say that? You ever said that? Or Jesus loves me or Jesus blesses me. 
And that's true, but that's only partly true. That's not even half the story. The go- that, that, that's certainly part of the gospel, but the gospel is so much more. Because yes, Jesus died for you, but he also died for all peoples. And Jesus loves you, but he also loves you so that you would extend that love to the world. And yes, Jesus blessed you to bless other people. And Jesus isn't just making you right with God. He's not just making you new. He's making what? He's making all things new. This is a universal cosmic story. You ever said something like this? Well, I just asked Jesus into my heart. I invited Jesus into my life. I desire Jesus to fit into my story. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the King of Kings. Does he seem like a guy who can fit into your heart? That fits into your story? No, God, this is the God of the universe. He's saying, you fit into my story. You join my life. You fit into my purpose. The question you've got to ask yourself is, how do I fit into God's story? This is a story that started in eternity past. The story that God is continuing to write. The question you've got to wrestle with today How do I fit into God's story? And here's where we'll wrap it up. This is the dirty secret. Following Jesus is not easy. We just read a letter from a man who is exiled on a deserted island. Ten of his laborers and co-workers were executed, martyred for their faith. It's not easy because we've got to abandon our old ways to honor Jesus. We've got to give God our undivided loyalty. We've got to give allegiance to his family, the church. It's difficult, but guess what? It's worth it. Because Jesus promises that he will walk with us each and every day as we live for him and tell others about him. And so the reason why John writes the book of Revelation, it's an encouragement to a church that is being persecuted and marginalized. And you know this? If you read the last two chapters in the book of the Bible, it describes the new heavens. And there's 15 verses in the last chapter in the Bible Eight of those verses are commands to stay faithful, to be committed, and to proclaim the good news. Do you understand what John is saying? He's saying you may suffer persecution and death for the sake of Jesus. You may be exiled on an island for Jesus, but it's worth it. And you need to stay faithful until Jesus returns. So this book, all of human history, it's about one man and his name is Jesus. And the Old Testament predicted it. And the gospels witnessed to Jesus, and the churches preached about Jesus, and now we wait for who? We wait for Jesus. And the Bible ends with these words right here in Revelation 22. It's this, amen, come Lord Jesus. So here's where I want to end it. I'm going to take about 90 more seconds. This is what we all want. Don't you all want to be a part of a big story? Isn't that why you're in college? Because there's a certain career profession, way of life that you want to be a part of? Isn't this why you joined sports teams and organizations and went Greek and joined different societies? Because you want to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Because you knew deep down there's got to be something more than just living for Instagram or for Netflix or for a reputation or to just push a ball down a field. I was made for something greater. Well, there's nothing greater than this story. And when this story starts to grip your life, it changes everything. So I'm going to give you one quick example of a young couple who was changed by the gospel story. It's a young couple. They were college students at Wheaton College. It was a man named Jim Elliott and his wife Elizabeth. And this story actually gripped them when they were in college. 
And they actually came to find out that there were certain tribes and people in the world who didn't have access to the good news of the gospel. In fact, they didn't even have scripture interpreted in their language. And so they heard about a group of people in Ecuador called the Waka Indians. And they had no access to scripture. And so even though Jesus had died for the Waka Indians, they didn't know it. So guess what Jim decided to do? He said, I'm going to bring the good news to the Waka Indians. And so they devoted their life to this. And believe it or not, Jim engages with these Indians. He starts evangelizing and sharing the gospel and learning the language. And he's martyred for his faith. They shoot him down with bows and arrows. And as Elizabeth is going through his personal possessions after he's passed away, she finds his journal. She starts reading through his journal and she comes across this quote. And this is what Jim wrote. He wrote this. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. And this is where the story gets even better. Guess what Elizabeth Elliot did? Did she live alone? A life of bitterness as a widow? Did she give her life to materialism and consumerism and a nice, easy, complacent life? Guess what she did? She went back to Ecuador. And now there's actually a church, there's a community of believers, there's a family of believers amongst the Waka Indians because she gives her life away. And she brings the good news. Elizabeth Elliot said this. She looked back on her life. She said this. There is nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. This is the question I want you to wrestle with. This is the question I want you to talk through today, tomorrow, for the next couple of days. Is what am I living for? Influence. Material possessions. A GPA. A relationship. What am I living for? Is that thing, is that person, is it worth dying for? Is it worth dying for? This is the good news of the gospel. We, we have given you the story, the big story, the story of the universe, the story of scripture. Okay. Jesus, he's worth dying for because he died for you and therefore he's worth your life. Okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to take about a 10-minute break, and we actually have a guest speaker coming back who's going to share some stories, some examples of what does it look like to live a life in light of this greater purpose, living in light of the greater story that God is writing. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would examine our hearts right now and ask ourselves, what is the story that we're living for? Is it worth living for? Is it worth dying for? I pray over the next 10 days that we would do away with really small stories. That we would see that Instagram likes, a certain body type, a GPA, a number in a bank account, they ain't worth dying for and they're not worth living for. Lord, I pray that this big story would grip our minds and our hearts and we would live in light of its purpose. Lord, we thank you that there is a theme, there is a direction. There's a story that you are writing. Lord, I pray that every student in this room would find their place in your story. Praise your name, amen.